0: Hello, welcome back to the Matt Pfeiffer Experience. I am your host, Matthew Pfeiffer, and today I have on a very special guest. I have Zeno from Grace Legal Group all the way out in Los Angeles, California, and I'm looking forward to having this conversation with you because we're going to be talking about some difficult conversations that, to be honest with you, as many years as I've been on this podcast, we really haven't talked about some of these issues. We've talked about domestic violence. We've talked about criminal law and things like that. But we really haven't talked a lot about false allegations or if you're afraid that someone might create a false allegation against you, restraining orders and things of that nature. So I'm looking forward to having this conversation. Uh, With all that being said, I want to turn it over to our guest, Zeno. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much
1: for hopping on and tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started. Thank you, Matt. I'm, I'm blessed to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, so, yeah, my name is Zeno Sobo. I am an attorney out here in California. I'm licensed in California. I went to Auburn University down in um, Alabama. I was raised in Atlanta, Georgia. But after college, I moved out to uh, Malibu to go to law school at Pepperdine. I graduated from Pepperdine in 2021 and just knew that I had a mission To become the biggest criminal defense law firm in the world and so i started my firm immediately grace legal group and we're unapologetically christian that is god's grace because we believe with grace there's always a second chance there's always a reality that goes beyond what someone's been accused of and we don't give up until that's clear and brought to the light of day which is why we started our firm
0: you know it's uh, it's interesting that you say that because uh, oftentimes when you hear people who are going through some sort of criminal defense there's always this even though it, the presumption should be innocent until proven guilty oftentimes people just assume that that person is guilty that they did something wrong uh, you know what what is the the reality when it comes to criminal defense is it that you know oftentimes that it's just you know, a a big mistake or, you know, what, what do you, what do you see most often?
1: Well, when we get any set of case, uh, case facts or any client that walks through our door, it's two questions I always have to get the answer to. Is it a, who did it? Or is it a, what is it? Okay. So when you're talking about what is it, it's more like you understand, you don't know if someone's guilty or anything like that. So you're supposed to be, you know, innocent until proven guilty. But the reality is the system doesn't work that way. From the beginning, the police, the prosecutor, and the judge, they have to kind of assume you did it in determining bail. You know, Mm -hmm. should we have you spend money to get out or should we just release you back to your home because we don't think that you're going to be a threat to public safety? That requires them to initially do an analysis of, did this person commit this crime? And that's not being, pro- you know, proved guilty. That's just simply, you know, our gut feeling that this person probably did it. So the innocent okay. till proven guilty thing from the system kind of isn't even real. So when you're talking about kind of what is it, you know, that's like your first question you're asking. Like, all right, what type of charge is this? Assuming the client did do it, you know, is there a reality where releasing him so that he can continue his job? You know, continue um, his working in his community. Is that going to be a better outcome than having him stay in jail while we figure out if he really did do it or not? So that's always mm-hmm. the first question. And the second question is well, not only really the second question, but like the equal uh, question we have to ask is who done it? And so from the beginning, there's uh, so many cases, we're talking about false allegations. There's so many cases where I speak with my client, I look at the police report and like, I have a very good gut feeling and understanding that my client is not the person who committed this crime, okay? Whether that's because the victim's lying or that's because the police did a lazy investigation and they just picked up the first person who seemed likely. Like, I can kind of know these things from the beginning. But again, it's me and my client versus the judge, the prosecutor, and the police who has a built in system where they have to assume that my client is the person who did it. And so Mm -hmm. like, when we say innocent till proven guilty, it's nice in theory, but is not actually in reality. Right.
0: What, what inspired you to go into criminal law? I think that, you know, I don't think that people understand. I think that uh going to back to that bias that a lot of people that you're just talking about that a lot of people have about criminal defense is that you're defending criminals and and letting people who commit horrendous crimes off the hook and you're helping so you know in so many words helping out the bad guy um what inspired you to to you know go down this path was it something that you saw in school was it something that you experienced like personal was it something you know that you saw a friend or family member experience um, you know, what, what, uh, what inspired you to go down this path?
1: So, uh, I would say the reality was that I was the same age as Trayvon Martin um, when he died. Yeah. And I remember, you know, watching that with my dad when I came home from school, looking at the highlights of the court case, just kind of having this basic ignorant assumption that, you know, once you go to court and you know, obviously we're going to have the whole world watching it, the system will do the proper thing and, in that case, prosecute George Zimmerman and have him be found guilty. Right. Um, what I realized in that moment at age 17 was that the criminal justice system is not infallible, it's not perfect, it's not even in its base form what it's supposed to be, um, which is focused on rehabilitation and restorative justice. and constitutional rights and most importantly, justice for the victims. Right? There's a reality right. where you want to go through a process and a bad person, not a bad person rather, but you know, an actor that did a bad thing is kind of held accountable for shooting a young 17 year old African American in, in, in cold blood. You know, right. I know it's kind of confusing because like in that case I was, you know, hoping the prosecution won but that was just one part of my journey. It started there that I knew I wanted to get into criminal law. It wasn't until law school that I actually went to work at the DA's office here in LA, the same office that prosecuted OJ, okay? Mm -hmm. Another example of where I was like, huh, I was studying OJ and I was like, wow, Like that's another example of how, okay, the system should be a certain way. You should expect a certain outcome. But there's a reality where it's not where it's supposed to be right now. I want to go in there myself, learn as much as I can, and figure out how we can make this system what it's supposed to be. It just kind of grew over time. Eventually, I go to the DA's office and I'm I'm working there for over a year, and and like God just completely flipped what I was supposed to see because what I saw was, you know, prosecutors having real discussions of should we put this homeless person in jail because they had a knife on them? Mm -hmm. And I'm there being like, um, no. And realizing that, you know, number one, I had no power. Obviously I was an intern, but even like the people who had been there for three, four years, they didn't have any say either. It was the people who had been there for 25 years who were deciding whether or not we should prosecute homeless people. I saw another case where, um a homeless woman had uh, her baby you know like literally had her baby in an uh, abandoned place and like so she basically trespassed and then it was up to a burglary because she mm-hmm. apparently went into a place without permission that's um and then tried to commit a crime in there basically that's what uh constitutes burglary they charged her with burglary for literally having her baby at a, a abandoned property that belonged to the city. And again, they're having a conversation like, should we prosecute her? And I was watching like, you know, grown adults really like struggle to determine whether they should do that or not. And so like in that moment, in that that year, like God completely just said like, yes, you're right. You do need to fix the criminal justice system, but I'm calling you to bring restorative justice and rehabilitation back to the forefront. Okay, I think if people are really more focused on the root cause of why we have a prosecutor agency in the first place, which is a whole bunch of things poverty, drugs, um, just uh, racial profiling, we can really get to the root cause of helping victims again. Right. Since the beginning of time, there have been people, actors, who have done bad things, and mm-hmm. since the beginning of time, we have deemed them bad people and sequestered them from society. And crime still exists. There are crime rates across the world, and right. so God really called me to create a paradigm shift. Like we have to do better. We have to do something different, yeah. and and, and vic- you know focusing on the victims and making sure that they feel that they. Got their justice is important, but I think equally, if not more important, is making sure that people, defendants who come through the system don't come back. Right. And, and placing them in jail cells historically has not worked. Right. And so that's where one I'm other, at now. What, um,
0: one of the questions that, that, uh, that I have, uh, you know, when you talk about bad actors and people who might need um, restoration and might need a second chance. I kind of want to segue into kind of the the bulk of our conversation Um, because you in my background in therapy and I'm sure you with criminal law, a lot of this, a lot of what you're talking about also flows over into relationships, people who are going through divorces, people who are going through breakups or uh, going, you know, unfortunately, domestic violence and things of that nature. and unfortunately, you see people, uh, we know that that domestic violence is a real thing. We know that domestic violence happens. I don't want to downplay that at all. Um, and at the same time, you know, we hear stories of people who utilize that as a, as a way to try to weaponize, to try to gain leverage in certain situations. Uh, is that something that is more common than what people think? Or is that something that uh, is not really that big of a deal and doesn't happen as mo- as often as what people
1: think. That's a great question. I think um, it's way more common than people think. I have a detective friend who's been doing this for 21 years, and they will tell me half of their domestic violence calls are fake. Wow, half. That's even more than what I was anticipating. Half, half. Uh, that, I don't know if that's an official stat, but that's right. you know that's what his experience has been, and in my experience. I could say for every restraining order that we've gotten for victims from their abusers, where it's righteous and we get that abuser away from them so that my client can live and thrive. We also have, on the other hand, cases that have gotten dismissed in criminal court because the victim, whether it's a man or a woman, and, and, and men do it too, they will they will right. cry and, and make false domestic violence claims. Um, We've gotten equal amounts, not equal, but, you know, close to equal amounts of cases dismissed that are with those facts where someone just wanted to weaponize the police. They called first. They said that person scratched me and they'll even scratch themselves. Mm-hmm. I'm in the middle of getting a case dismissed right now where it was a client's you know, wife who just had you know a mental episode, harmed herself, called the police. The police came, you know, they see what they see. And they arrest my client, and now he has to obviously spend money, has to go through this entire process with you know three years prison in the you know over his head, hoping that his attorney can get him not even a second chance, a first chance, right. <laughs> a first chance at the truth being made clear. And we will get his case dismissed um, because we made very clear at the preliminary hearing that uh, this didn't happen, and she yeah. made it up based off an episode, and she's been seeking treatment since then um, because of it. What um
0: what do you think inspires people to go down that path? Is it revenge? Is it control? Is it custody? Is it, you know, um, you know, just some, some form of leverage that they that they want over them, or what, what have you seen as been like the motivation?
1: All of the above. All of the above. I you know, like you said, custody with their children, um, whether it's uh, a housing situation, oh, there's this new thing where you can get a a immigration visa if you're a victim of a crime. And so Mm -hmm. people are doing it to get, you know, citizenship. Um, I think all of the above can be summed up in the word toxicity. Yeah. Everyone by the time of age 26 or 27 has experienced a toxic relationship. If you date regularly. Okay. We are, adults and we know what toxicity looks like and unfortunately not unfortunately but sometimes you have children with people where it's like a very toxic relationship but now you're attached to that toxic person for the rest of you know your life because of your child and so my advice to people is just if you know like you're in a toxic relationship you've dealt with a reality where you're dating someone who gaslights, manipulates, and is willing to call the police, you need to get out. Mm-hmm. You need, that person's not going to change anytime soon. What will make them change is seeing you go to jail, and then maybe they'll open their eyes. So there's a reality where we all know who we're with, yeah. and we know the type of you know, things that they're willing to do. You know, in their own narcissism, in their own reasons for their children, in their own reasons for immigration, whatever it is, it's toxicity. And these people will call the police. They will say that you beat them up. They will even harm themselves sometimes so that the police can take pictures and they don't need to say anything after that anymore because the police can go take that and the prosecutor will just use that. Are there any
0: warning signs that someone might be able to see? that would allude to that this might be like within someone's character um that they might create these type of false allegations or that they would say certain things or that they would lie to you know lie on um their their significant other to try to create these type of leverages
1: well i'd say number one is do they lie to other people regularly
0: Mm -hmm.
1: okay It's like, it's fun for me when we get to the trial or the, or the preliminary hearing phase where I can just cross-examine liars and like make them fumble over their own words. But like, Mm -hmm. if you know now, like that there's someone who naturally lies, like they will lie and not even care, just lie so they can have their way, lie so they can remove something, lie at work to get ahead. These are core behaviors that you can identify right now. And then on top of that, if you... Know that this liar is someone that also could engage in domestic abuse. Like they've they've hit you before, or they've hit other people. They've hit exes. Like uh, that combination. You're asking to have them call the police on you. Right. I think those are like the main things right there. You're with the liar who engages in domestic abuse. Even I've had cases where even if the victim calls the police first, yeah, you know the liar will get out there first, talk to the police. And whoever talks to the police first, that's the narrative they're using. And so that's generally, like, get away from liars. That's the main sign, I would say, to look for.
0: Uh, I want to kind of transition that same scenario over to restraining orders. Um, You know, I know you deal with a lot of restraining orders, and I know you said with domestic violence, you know, about half or uh, the detective that that you work with about half of those calls are, um, you know, they, they believe could could potentially be fake. Um, do you feel like it's the same thing with restraining orders where people are just kind of using that as leverage? And again, I want to give a disclaimer. We know that there's times where people, ne- you know, it's very necessary. People 100% need them. And I encourage people who do need them to, to get them, you know. But, you know, are there scenarios where people are just creating scenarios, you know, to try to, to, try to gain leverage?
1: Absolutely. Um, in the beginning when we we're just starting out restraining orders, I didn't really couldn't really tell the difference until you got to the hearing. Mm-hmm. But now I'm able to tell when someone tries to hire us to do a bogus restraining order and we just tell them no. Yeah. Like at this point, if we're putting a petition forward for a restraining order, it is because you have real proof that this person is battering you, has been battering you. There are kids in the mix that you're really worried about their safety for. That's the only reality where we actually pursue it. And we get a lot of calls where they'll say, yeah. like, this person's, like, stomping on the ground, on the, on the ceiling, can't get a restraining order. No. We also have claims sometimes where people will call and say, like, my uh, ex boyfriend stalking me and abusing me. Yeah, They're not. They just want to see their son. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to use the restraining order process to get you custody. You can use the restraining order process to get custody of your children. So, I'm like, I've gotten calls like that where we do the investigation and we really just see, wow, no, no, no. Like, you're the manipulative one and you're trying to manipulate the court and me into making sure that you make don't, don't let your child see the, their father. And so we definitely get calls like that. On the other side, it's called respondent. So, like, the person who puts a restraining order in is a petitioner. The one who has to, like, defend one is a respondent. And so we do a lot of respondent representations as well. And I have definitely, like my partner Jordan—not you know—I mainly handle criminal defense. But I've done some restraining orders. Uh, my partner Jordan, he mainly does restraining orders, and he gets a lot of respondent calls, and he gets the majority of them dismissed. So you know, what does that tell you right there? Because it does not regularly rise to the level of you need to restrain this person. And it needs to be on the internet that they are restrained. It rarely rises to that. There are times though, where if it's really serious, then you would involve the police and the criminal court system puts a restraining order for you. Yeah. And so there's no need for you really to hire a lawyer. If you're trying to call a lawyer to get a restraining order. Okay. It's actually more likely that there's, there's a family aspect component with it, like children that they want involved, or it's you're trying to like, have us defend nonsense claims. And right. that's why you'll see on our Instagram, Jordan gets cases dismissed regularly
0: because yep. of that. One of the things uh, I, I think, um, you know, in our society right now, and you see this all over the internet and all over social media, is this narrative to believe all victims. And while I want to be very sensitive to that, you know, because uh, I do obviously both of us, you know, are here to also protect victims. But I think that one of the things that we also have to acknowledge is that sometimes the person who is claiming to be a victim is act- actually the perpetrator. Is kind of what I'm is kind of what I'm hearing. Um, with that being said. With everything that you just mentioned, with restraining orders, with domestic violence, with some of the false claims, with a lot of well, probably far more false claims than what I anticipated, uh, what what type of long term effects does that have in the system? Does that cause people, judges, attorneys, to kind of pause and kind of you know before they actually are able to kind of help the true actual victims? What what does what does that look like you know behind the scenes?
1: I mean, yeah, so so like the best case scenario where I'm involved is like we get the case dismissed after two to three months of doing my work and representing you in active court. Um, There's domestic violence, false allegations, and there's sexual violence, false allegations. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a client, well-to-do man, you know, happily married. Um, but his wife had a daughter with a previous husband mm-hmm. and she, the daughter, 11 years old, did not like my client stepdad, mm-hmm. just decided to tell the police, you know, uh, the counselor first at school and then the police that he, uh, sexually assaulted her wow. and, you know, even as a criminal defense attorney, you kind of, you start from a place of, this is very serious. Mm -hmm. If my client did this, I want to be sensitive to all the victims and and the repercussions of it. But after like, we we worked on the case for six months, he did not do it. There's just that reality where he did not do it. Yet, he was not allowed to be in the house with the rest of the children who did love him. Mm-hmm. He had to wear an ankle monitor. He had to obviously request off work every time he came to court. And that affects his his job. They're asking, why are you taking me off work all the time? I'm being charged with rape. It's, it's, it's serious repercussions that, affect, that affected his life for six months.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Not to mention the personal reputation, right. you know, where the people who knew him and loved him stood by him even they had to make a decision like do do i you know do i really know him yeah i do know him okay he didn't do this like it's 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 a ripple effect and finally by god's grace it was dismissed in december and you know there's no conviction so that's good and now he doesn't have to come back to court that's good but he does six months of his life he's not getting back um not only that, but, but, that,
0: but it's still it's still a stain on his reputation in terms of the people who, you know, who might feel like he got off, you know, got away with something or still kind of question, you know, his motives and and that sort of thing as well.
1: Absolutely. And on top of that, you know, you have two types of records. You have your conviction record, all your criminal convictions, and then you also have your arrest record. So if you're just arrested, but then you're... Uh, Released because oh we don't have enough evidence, that's on your record, yeah. And so he he has on his record I was arrested for rape, and I'm gonna I'm gonna do my motion to get that cleared. But massive repercussions just by false accusations. Right. He wasn't. And by the way, this is the perfect example of he was at no point found guilty. He pled not guilty, and then six months later, because of our work, the case was dismissed. So at no point was he found guilty. But what do you, what was he innocent until proven guilty? Like, no. It's still on his record today, arrested for rape. So it's like... In a situation like
0: that, would you recommend that that person leave that relationship because of the potential threat and the potential harm that that might have on that person long term?
1: I think if it's a child, you have to... try to recommend like counseling early mm-hmm. early that's what i would say if it's a child if yep. it's a spouse who's like this was like her, his spouse who said this or something then yes get out mm-hmm. there's eight billion people on the planet you do not have to be with this one person who's gonna put you in jail
0: uh this is all of this is absolutely absolutely fantastic and you know i think that a lot of people you know, need to hear the other side of it, because I, I think that it's just like you said, I think it's far more common than what people think. And I think a lot of people feel a lot of shame even bringing it up. I know I've worked with people, um, you know, in therapy where people would, you know, be afraid to even bring it up because they are afraid that you're going to believe the other side. I, again, you know, the, the narrative, believe all victims, um, you know, and so I, I think that, you know, the work that you're doing is absolutely, absolutely amazing. You know, now, uh, you know, we have to ask the other side of it, you know, uh, are there a potential, uh, is there a potential, um, situations where people who may have actually committed issues that are actually getting off, is there any scenarios like that? Or, uh, have you found yourself defending someone who may actually be guilty or are there actual statutes or limitations where you know when you find out that, that person's guilty where you can't defend them anymore what what does that look like
1: so that's where like my real slogan comes in because with grace there's always a second chance yeah i think the reality is if there's an actor who does a bad thing okay we have two choices let's just assume he did it that's what, that's what we're talking about yeah. um put him in a cell and hope that that is what heals the victim,
0: mm-hmm.
1: okay? Yep. And historically, I don't think that's that's worked. So the other option is, you know, kind of like a form of alternative dispute resolution, but it's rehabilitate the actor to the point where number one he would never do this again, and number two he realizes like what leads up to the thoughts that lead up to those actions. Mm-hmm. He can make full amends with the victim if the victim is willing to do that. But at least with the with himself, he can ma- understand what happened. And we believe mm-hmm. that putting them in a cell doesn't does that, but it doesn't. It actually hardens them most of the time. Yeah. And so that person is rehabilitated, understands the full gravity. He's a, able to atone in a way that's acceptable to the victim, to society, and to himself. And then on top of that, he's able to be an example for future people who might have a thought pattern that leads to taking bad actions. And so that's my theory, because we've never tried that full force before. Mm -hmm. We've always put them in a cell and then sprinkled rehabilitation on top of it. And we're doing it now with like low level crimes, but when we're talking about the high level ones, like, you know, sex allegations, Mm -hmm. or you're talking about like a medium level, which is like domestic violence, like, you know, beating up your, 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 uh, a victim. um, The reality is both actors need to understand like why they can't do that. Why people in society can't do that. And they should be given the benefit of being able to teach others what they've learned from that scenario right. by just putting them in a cell, we're not getting that done. And, mm-hmm. and and I and I recognize that we have to make sure that victims are getting justice. I just want to redefine what justice means for victims. Right. Uh, and I know that's kind of hard to say when like I'm not a victim of these crimes myself, which is why I guess I want to ally with victims who think like me. You mm-hmm. know, victims who have experienced these bad acts but still somewhere in their heart have located grace and they right. would rather see their offender rehabilitated than right. rotting away in a cell. Right. Zeno, so, you know,
0: all of this is absolutely fascinating information. Uh we appreciate your wealth, wealth of knowledge. Um if someone wanted to contact you or if they wanted to learn more more or- uh, just follow you on social media. Where are some spots that they can find you at and learn more about you, or more about your practice?
1: Absolutely. So you can always go to our Instagram. That's my personal project, Grace Legal Group, like God's grace. Um, we have a YouTube as well, same name, Grace Legal Group. And I always encourage people to Google us, check out our reviews, check out our site, see the type of people we've helped, see what our mission's about. And remember, with grace, there's always a second chance. So if you are
0: listening to this, regardless of where you're listening to this, if you're on YouTube or if you're listening to this on your favorite podcast station, make sure you guys go down to the comment section down below. Let Zeno and I know something, a takeaway or something that you may have learned from today's episode. Uh, Also, make sure you guys go to you can go down to the show notes. You can go and follow Zeno. You can uh, show him some love in his comment section, give him some follows, make sure you guys go to his DMs, let him know uh, some kind of takeaways, or if you need some help, if you feel like you may may have uh, a situation that you need help with, and especially if you're out in the California area, uh, make sure that you uh, contact him, contact his firm, and let him know and see if there's something that, that they can do. So with all that being said, thank you very much and I will see you in the next episode. You guys have a great one.
1: Thanks, Matt.